Please note that this episode contains mentions and graphic descriptions of sexual assault. One of the things that I noticed about him was he had just a complete disregard for the rules against lecturer-student relationships. He was not ashamed to say that, you know, he was attracted to me and he would like to pursue a relationship even after he thought that I was a student who would be transferring to his department. Hi, I'm Patrick Butler, Senior Vice President of Content and Community at the International Center for Journalists. Welcome to Chasing the Story, the ICFJ podcast that gives the mic back to journalists. In every episode, an outstanding journalist takes us behind the scenes to explain how they chased and landed a major story. From following dark money across the U.S.-Mexico border to exposing how a powerful Slovak businessman ordered the killing of a reporter, journalists in the ICFJ network take you behind the scenes to better understand how some of the world's most important investigations were conducted. Today, we're going to hear from Nigerian journalist Kiki Morty about how she and her colleagues went undercover, posing as young students to expose sexual harassment at universities in Ghana and Nigeria. Their BBC documentary, Sex for Grades, started a movement across Africa, giving survivors a chance to speak up and leading to anti-sexual harassment legislation in Nigeria. Kiki is a freelance investigative reporter and radio presenter, as well as the founder of the media platform Document Women. Kiki is also the winner of ICFJ's 2020 Michael Elliott Award for Excellence in African Storytelling. This is her story. My name is Kiki Mordi. I'm an investigative journalist from Lagos, Nigeria, and I started my career in journalism 10 years ago from radio broadcasting until in 2019, I found myself leading a team of female investigative journalists in Lagos and Accra to uncover sexual harassment in universities. When I was in university myself, I understood how bad the skill of sexual harassment was, or the thing we've come to term sex for grades, which is lecturers uh, proposing sex in exchange for good marks, because it happened to me and it was the sole reason I dropped out of university. And so a couple of years later, when I'd met some BBC journalists in Lagos um, talking about wanting to investigate sexual harassment, I was more than interested to join this movement. We were at the pre-production stage. We were trying to gather enough facts to ascertain if truly sex for grades was a culture. I knew that in my heart, but we needed the numbers to back it up. And so we set to work interviewing hundreds of past and current students in different universities in West Africa. And the testimonies that we got told us that this was an emergency and we needed to work quickly. And so I immediately joined a team of about two people at the time, um, two journalists in the BBC, who started to do the on-ground research, which lasted for months. About nine months of research, and this is thorough research and lots and lots of paperwork and lots and lots of sleepless nights, we were able to narrow down our search to two universities. A lot of the testimonies we had pointed to lecturers in University of Lagos in Nigeria 
and University of Ghana in Ghana. Before we were able to justify undercover filming for this report, we had to look at the long history of how the media has reported sexual harassment in both countries, Nigeria and Ghana. And it was really just a vile retrial and re-traumatization of victims. There was a, a challenge when a girl described how she was assaulted. She was asked to bend over a stool. Shortly after her testimony went viral, people started a challenge where they would bend over a stool and take pictures. And we knew that that was not the route we, were, we wanted to go. We did not want to go into this media retrial of the victims who were brave enough to tell their stories. We wanted something different. And we also did not want them to look like we, we, they were not victims, they were survivors. And so many of these people have come to tell their stories. They told us their stories even before we went undercover because much of their testimonies led us to the people who we ended up investigating. Um, and honestly, they were brave coming back to retell their story from a place of strength. Before investigating, none of us had ever gone undercover before. This was new to me. I'd been a journalist for a long time, but I'd never done investigative journalism. Neither have I ever done undercover recording and filming. So we had to go through thorough training. For many of the lecturers we were investigating, we had evidence in form of screenshots, recordings to prove that they had been violent in the past. And so it was a very dangerous thing to want to put yourself in a situation where you might be at the mercy of this man who we know to be very violent. That is why we needed to take all the precautions, both physical security, mental precautions to protect ourselves from these men and these lecturers. I had like training that I did alone on how to find sources and identify sources. That one lasted one week for me. And then where we started to introduce other women who were going to go undercover, we learned how to rig a camera. That was the wildest thing ever. We were given intimidating looking gear that I thought I, I, I'd only seen on TV. And then I, we had to rig the camera from the scratch and find find places to place it. And then when we were comfortable enough to be able to like quickly rig the camera, uh, we started to learn about like camera angles because it was cinematography, just a different kind. So we had another crash course on cinematography, how to make sure that the camera is capturing exactly what you wanted to, how to use your head to measure height, like the height of a person, the height of the room, the distance you should give them when you're talking to be able to capture like everything. And then when we were confident in rigging and framing, we started to do the safety aspect of the training. We would reenact like a situation where you might be trapped in a room with a man who we have identified as a violent person. And so the red flag is when he starts to go close to the door. So we did this other safety training for this one lasted a week and not everyone scaled through the specific one. And it was very, very strict that you had to be able to scale this one before you could move to the next level. And the next level was just looking out for each other, testing the panic buttons and knowing exactly what to do, um, knowing how to like measure threat levels, knowing how to check in um, stylishly, um, send a text or place a call. 
And then, of course, we just set up like new identities for ourselves and we had to memorize this. And we had like, just like you get calls randomly in the middle of the night and like, okay, what's your name? What course are you studying? You know, just so that you get your story straight. So I was um, uh, an undergraduate who was looking to switch courses from one um, course to another. Um, we had many, we had one person who hadn't gotten admission yet cause she looked the youngest. So she had to play the part of a 17 year old. Um, so it was very important that she reiterated several times her age because we wanted to be sure that this lecturer knew exactly what he was doing, praying after underage girls, both pre and during the investigation was identifying grooming because we all knew what grooming was in theory, but it was scary seeing it play out because at some point we felt like one of us was being groomed. One of our, one of our journalists was being groomed by the lecturer because we, we, saw, we saw her starting to make excuses for him. And we were very, I was very scared. Like when that happened, the anxiety was off the roof. We had to take a step back remind ourselves exactly what we're doing, remind ourselves to recognize what grooming looks like and how you might actually be a victim of grooming, even though you're an empowered investigative journalist, you're not beyond or you're not above being groomed. And of course, we had scheduled mental health talks just to remind ourselves to stay grounded and in case any one of us was triggered, um, how we could you know, manage that situation. On a typical day of going undercover, timing is very important. We want to spend 60 seconds or less rigging the camera. We test run it for 30 seconds or less, and then we head out. And we head out in threes. Um, so three girls start walking, and then it's a long walk to the lecturer's office. Before the lecturer's office, there is a where students hang out. So you just sit down there. I mean, no one will question you because you look like every other person there, just with a textbook and a bag. And so one student stops there. The two go forward into the department. Um, and then one stops right outside the lecturer's office while the other one goes into the lecturer's office. Where phones are allowed, we do the 15-minute check-in with code words. Um, and then if something is wrong, we hear the code word we move in immediately. When you're done recording, you walk straight back to the car. Of course, you make sure no one is following you. Um, every other person is behind you to make sure no one is following you. And then you go to the car, you do a quick summary so that the, um, the mic can record that before uh, turning it off. Undercover recording and filming part, we learned a lot more than we learned in the research stage. Of course, we knew that the numbers were bad. Like the data that we had was telling us that this was a pandemic. But going in there and experiencing it for ourselves was just an eye opener. For example, while my colleague was inside one of the lecturer's offices and I had to stand guard just outside, I was accosted by a lecturer who just saw me standing and just saw me as free game and literally just like grabbed my arm and like pulled me to his office. You know, the, the way that it happened so brazenly just reminded me of how it was when I was in school like, so, so many years back. I always knew like my education was stolen from me, but the extent of it, I discover like every day. So I set out to be a science student. I always wanted to be a scientist or a doctor, to be precise. 
But when this harassment started, and this harassment start, lasted for a year, this was one year of constant harassment until I finally decided I was done. It, it was hard for me to keep up with the rest of my classes because the person harassing me was my course supervisor. Essentially, he was in charge of all my courses. So if I had any problems with any other lecturer, ideally he's the person to report to. But then this is the person that was harassing me. Something as easy as course registration, where you have to register all your courses so that you can be graded properly, turned into just like a harassment spree because I had to be in the office alone with him. And this is a thing that we do once a year. So I thought that I would endure that and then I would not have to see him again. But then I, he asked for my number. He asked for a date. Uh, he wanted us to meet in the staff club which is exactly what happened in the documentary, by the way. The staff club was in a different city. And then, I mean, another city, many years later, investigating sexual harassment. And the first thing the lecturer did was invite a student to the staff club. So that just shows how complicit the universities are. Because all of this, you know, lecturer-student relationships happen right there in the staff club, in the open, for everyone to see. Um, So for me... That whole year was lost, first of all. I wasn't able to concentrate in many classes. And every time I noticed that a a course was giving me issues, I would always be able to trace it back to him. And so getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, became increasingly hard for me every single day. It got to a point I would wake up, dress up, and pretend to go to class because everybody in my hostel was going to class. And I would just walk around the hostel and just sit somewhere and mope. And I did not recognize this as depression, but I was definitely dealing with depression for almost a year until the day that I finally decided I was I couldn't continue like this. Like what education was I even saving anyway? I was, you know, trying not to be rude. I would beg, I would cry because I still really wanted to graduate. And then after a year, I just looked back at how my year was academically. I wasn't even doing great. So like, what was I, there was nothing left to continue. And maybe that was like the deciding factor in me saying, not anymore. I'm no longer interested. You've been threatening me that I will not graduate. I'm no longer interested in graduating. I think, in fact, that was the first time I felt free for like a whole year. In the course of our investigation, these lecturers who we were investigating were acting according to the pattern that we derived from all of the testimonies that we got from all of the girls. But then watching that pattern play out like in front of us, I don't think I have the words to describe that. I wasn't able to get the justice that I deserved many years ago. And many of the women who I spoke to who broke down in tears in my arms when we were talking just somehow had this sliver of hope that maybe we will do something about this problem. And then when it started to look like this might be a success, I started to get excited, you know, if not for anyone, for the singular woman who I spoke to, who was one of Dr. Boniface's victims, who kept crying through the interview. Some of the things that she said about how he degraded her, he's a pastor, by the way, how he would be preparing for church with a Bible in his hand and be and just like be groping her until he until he releases on her she just felt like filth for a very long time she wasn't able to just 
regard herself as a full human being who was capable of love. It was a really horrible interview. And out of the many people that I spoke to, she was the one that was in my head. Every time we were investigating this man, it was just her testimony that was in my head haunting me. It was like every day we're scared to go back into this office, but we knew we had to do it for her. Dr. Boniface uh, was a professor of French in the Department of Languages. Uh, he was an associate professor, and he would be quick to remind you that he's an associate professor. It felt like he was always trying to establish dominance, authority, every single time. Um, many, like many of his students, past and even current students, complained about the same thing. He targeted them for a very long time. He groomed them, and then he made sexual contact with every single one of them. He was the main character of the documentary Sex for Greats because he had the most shocking and the most brazen example of grooming a person who he believed to be 17 years old and eventually just trying to make sexual contact. Um, he was also a pastor, the head pastor of the Foursquare Gospel Church. It's a local church in Lagos, um, in Yaba, Lagos, which is very close to the school. So a lot of students who attend church would automatically attend his church. And so he's, a, he's in charge of students at the church. He's also in charge of students at school. When our undercover journalist, um, who we called Kemi, um, to protect her identity, went undercover. One of the things that I noticed about Dr. Boniface is, number one, he exerts his authority. He makes you understand that he is older than you. He is in charge of so many things. He has so many things at his disposal, and he's really powerful. In the same breath, he tries to make present himself as a father figure, tries to be playful around you, tries to get you to be comfortable, tries, tries to get you to talk, laugh, you know, playful, um, so that you'll be super comfortable around him. Another thing that we notice is how he throws inappropriate compliments in the middle of serious conversations. Um, in Within 15 minutes of meeting this young Kemi, he had already called her beautiful so many times. We counted, I think it was 17 Another thing we noticed at a later stage was when he tries to scare Kemi with her mother. I mean, respect and religion in Nigeria is very, is very textbook that uh, if a pastor, not just a pastor, a lecturer slash pastor reports you to your mother, your mother is going to take his side. It's just automatic. And he knew that and he wielded that as some leverage he had over her. The other lecturer in the University of Lagos who we investigated, Dr. Samuel Oladipo, wasn't originally on the list of lecturers who we were investigating. But while I was keeping guard outside the office of the lecturer we were investigating, he accosted me and, you know, essentially pulled me to his office, asked for my number, um, and just try to establish some sort of relationship with me within just minutes of seeing me without even asking, you know, without even my consent, essentially. Um, 
So, I mean, any student in that situation would be scared and would give their number, which is exactly what I did. Thankfully, we were prepared because we were investigating another lecturer. So we already had the burner phones and the number that I shared with him. He, one of the things that I noticed about him was he had just a complete disregard for the rules against lecturer-student relationships. He was not ashamed to say that you know, he was attracted to me and he would like to pursue a relationship even after he thought that I was a student who would be transferring to his department. The cold room was another sinister um, discovery from the University of Lagos. We learned that there was an inner part of the staff club called the cold room and the windows were blacked out. Um, The music is always louder. The only people you would see in that room were senior lecturers with really young girls. Every, every lecturer you see in the cold room has a girl or two on their arm or on their lap. And all the students, all the girls look like students. Investigating Dr. Oladipo, he invited me to the cold room. He took me to the cold room and I saw older lecturers, lecturers in their 60s and above, just partying with young girls. And that was just the entire scene. It looked like a brothel. And I asked, like, well, these, aren't these girls, like, students? And, you know, it looked like I was asking, like, what kind of obvious question are you asking? And we found out that that's where a lot of girls get grouped. If you invite a girl to the staff club as a senior staff member and you proceed to take her into the cold room, it seemed like there was only one output from there, and that is just grouping or harassing the girl. After the documentary was released, the cold room was sealed by the university authorities. And I'm hoping that more cold rooms need to be found and sealed. Another professor we were investigating in the Ghana side of things was Paul Kwame Butako. He was a teacher and an education professor at the University of Ghana. And we had heard lots of stories of him seeking relationships with students, which was against the law. You know, according to the sexual harassment policy in the University of Ghana, you cannot actively, because of your position of power, you can't actively seek a relationship with a student. Um, But he was notorious for that. The other lecturer in the University of Ghana, who was also a social commentator and a politician, essentially, Professor Ransford Jampo. He was quite notorious, really, for isolating students, giving them their wrong mark, seeking relationships with them, gifting them things, you know, buying things for students, and then giving them great marks. The threats all sound the same. The one I heard, what, over 11 years ago, was you will not graduate, you will not pass my course. And then the ones we heard from um, testimonies of past and current victims of the lecturers we ended up investigating. Um, Words like, you will not pass my course. I'll make sure you repeat this year. And then the peculiar situation where this journalist who was pretending to be a 17-year-old was seeking admission. That admission was dangled in front of her like like a prize for enduring harassment. It's like, remember you want admission. You, you You want to get into Unilag. I'll make it happen for you. After the documentary was released, um, Sex for Grades became a movement. It became a thing that was 
an easy identifier. For a very long time, we knew what sex for grades was, but we couldn't put it in an easily identifiable word. Um, what that film did was provide context for this large spectrum of what sex for grades might look like and how it starts, starts from grooming and it ends at sexual contact and there is a lot of in-between. And so it became more easily identifiable. And as a result of that, a bill was reintroduced into the Senate. I mean, the bill was uh, introduced to the Senate a couple of years prior to the release of Sex for Grades, but it was thrown out. Um, it was reintroduced with more context, with some words, in fact, that were pulled from the actual documentary. And that bill has since passed the third reading at Senate, and it's set to become a law that criminalizes sexual harassment in universities. Um, and sexual harassment is now um, recognizable from the early stage of grooming. It would be illegal for lecturers to continue to make body remarks at their students. And I'm glad that that is being recognized as part of sexual harassment because it's actually the beginning, the beginning of many harassment stories that we heard. Dr. Boniface Ibenehu and um, Dr. Oladipo were also fired um, after a long year of a very long investigation. Um, the investigation kicked off faster in the University of Ghana, but... The lecturers were acquitted and one of the lecturers continued to profile himself as a political commentator and even a politician. We definitely started an international conversation that was contextual to different countries. You know, till tomorrow I get emails from people from Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa. The, the movement is bigger than any of us that like took part in this, in the making of the documentary. It's it's taking a life of its own. And I don't think that that's going to slow down anytime soon. Many victims realized that they were not alone. When I was going through my own harassment many years ago, I just felt like I was the only one that was targeted. But in the course of investigating, I found out that I was definitely not the only one. And in fact, many people went through the same thing with the same lecturer. And I think it provided that insight for many victims because the days following the release of the documentary on Twitter, many people called out their lecturers, many lecturers trended, even the lecturers that weren't featured in the film, because people suddenly felt empowered enough to call out their lecturers for abusive behavior. And they found a community of more women who were willing to say no to the system that, had just, that has just grounded us for a very long time. Kiki, thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes. In the original BBC documentary, three of the accused lecturers, Dr. Butakor, Professor Yampo, and Dr. Oladipo, denied the allegations against them. The University of Ghana denied protecting university staff or students judged to have engaged in sexual harassment. The University of Lagos said it totally dissociates itself from the alleged behavior of the investigated lecturers. We encourage you to watch the original investigative footage, which is available online and linked to in the show notes. Listeners, thank you for being with us. We will be back in two weeks with another compelling story. If you liked this episode, please follow us on social media at ICFJ and subscribe to our newsletter at ICFJ.org. And if you'd like to support other inspiring journalists like Kiki, please register for our 2022 Tribute to Journalists on November 10th. 
The link for that will be in the show notes, along with links to Kiki's documentary and social media. 